Bible reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 33, and then we'll be reading from Matthew 13 shortly as well. It takes place as Jesus is discussing some things with the religious leaders. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now Matthew chapter 13 and verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, church. We're just going to set up a couple of little things here. What I do need, though, is I need a volunteer. Who knows what one of these is? I need two people, preferably under the age of 12, who'd be happy to come and do some sifting for me. So, oh, Josh and Jared were the first two, so I'm going to go with them. Okay. Well, we don't know the antique version. All right, so this is an antique one, by the way. You can come up here. Let me get rid of that. So a little bit of intro, and I'm going to get you to do something. So thank you, thank you. My name's Steve, and um, we're in the middle of a series about making room. And uh, last week we looked at basically slowing down, and Kathy spoke about that. This morning I want to talk about sifting, and I was really excited when Trav gave me this one to do because I feel that I'm somewhat of a sifting expert. Now, I have been sifting for over 45 years now because it was my role when mum was doing the baking, it was my role to do the sifting. And so I understand what an important thing sifting is. My role was to sift the flour or the cocoa to make sure that it was fit for purpose. That was the whole point of it. And I understood that mum could not make a good cake, could not bake anything of, of excellence without my very important sifting that went into it. And so the one I used, actually, I think it was very similar to this one. It was about that rusty as well. Uh, and so this is, you guys sift away. And give us a demonstration. So do you tap it first or do you go straight to the handle? What are we doing? They're handle people. I always used to tap mine a bit because, yeah, and then you go a bit too fast and it goes everywhere. Anyway, sift through, see what you find. If you find anything, let me know. But we know the purpose of sifting. The purpose of sifting is to remove things that shouldn't be there. So for flour or cocoa, you want to get rid of the lumps. How are they going? Are they doing a good job? You want to make sure that there's nothing in there because basically... That's what ends up in the mixture, and you don't want lumps in your cake, do you, Margaret? Never, never, never. You want a really good result. How are things going? There's not a cockroach in there, don't tell me that. So, yeah. Is there really? Well, pull it out. Okay, you can have that if you'd like. But there are things that we sift that are not... What have you got? A ring. A ring. Show it to me. Oh, that's my wedding ring. Ah, oh, 
Okay, so for those of you who... I'm on my first marriage, but this is my third ring. It just keeps disappearing. So, all right, we should put that where it belongs, right? Sorry. Thank you both. Round of applause for them. You didn't want it? You could put that somewhere where mum and dad would find it if you'd like. But the purpose of sifting is very clear. It's actually to remove things from where they shouldn't be. Now, some of those things you don't want, such as a cockroach in your flower, but other things are good. My wedding ring is good. It just doesn't belong in a cake, right? It belongs on this finger. It's a shame the first two didn't stay there. But the analogy goes across to life. This is what sifting is about. Sifting is about removing from our lives that which is unhelpful, They may be good things or they may be bad things. This is not necessarily sinful things. It's about removing things from our life. There's a great passage from Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says this, and and it captures the the aspect of of sifting. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded uh, by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You understand what he's saying? He says, throw off everything that hinders. It's not just the sin, it's the good things as well, because there are too many good things to actually enjoy in this life. He says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. There's a sense in which we need to sift our lives regularly. Life will become busy, life will become crowded. In a sense, life will become lumpy, and there will be things in our life, good or bad, that actually hinder our purpose for what God has created us and made us to be. And the Bible is very clear about who we are created to be and what we are to be created for. These were the passages read to us. When Jesus was asked about what is most important, he gives that answer. To love the Lord your God with everything that we have and to love our neighbour as ourselves. There's this sense of what is the most important thing of all the things that we are asked to do. What is the most important? It is, it is to love God, to love and to serve God and to love and to serve others. It's that simple. This is what we are made to do. Jesus speaks about the kingdom. So many parables, so many stories that he tells about this is what the kingdom is. This is what the kingdom is. It's just a very clear instruction of all the things that we pursue in life because we do. We pursue things. We pursue relationships. We pursue careers. We pursue so much in life. But Jesus says of all the things to pursue in life, there is one thing to seek above everything else and that is the kingdom. There is nothing more valuable of the kingdom and he tells these two parables of giving up Basically everything to obtain the pearl of great price. Giving up uh, everything in order to purchase the treasure that's in the field. There's a sense in which everything that we have is secondary to the seeking of God's kingdom. And so in terms of who we are called to be, what we are called to do, there's this very strong message that Jesus gives us. We are called to be people who love and serve God and love and serve others. We are called to be people who seek his kingdom. And those things are not disconnected. There is a sense in which we seek the kingdom. The kingdom of God speaks about a relationship with God. It speaks about his rule and his reign in our lives and in this world. Love him, serve him. Love others, serve them. Seek the kingdom. Sifting is a process of making sure that they remain our focus, that our eyes remain fixed on Jesus because there are things uh, that will come against us. I want to talk about sifting and particularly, firstly, the benefits of sifting. Primarily what sifting does is it actually creates room. This is what we're talking about. This series is about making room. As we intentionally 
discern, as we look at, as we intentionally sift through what our life contains with our eyes fixed on Jesus, with our heart towards God to serve him and to serve others, as we have the kingdom of God as our priority. Sifting creates room because we remove those things that are unhelpful, whether that be the cockroaches or the good things in our life that hinder that. Uh, It creates room to love and to serve both God and others. The other thing that sifting does, though, uh, is as we go through this process of discerning what it is we're called to do and what it is we're called to be, uh, it reminds us who we are. It reminds us of our identity because so often, because there is so much in our lives, we get our identity confused. We begin to believe that I am what I do, that I am my job, that I am my role in my family. And so we get the lumps, in a sense, the the lumpy bits in our life as we get confused about who it is that we truly are. And so as we sift through our life, as we are intentional in thinking about what is it that God has called me to do and to be, uh, this question comes back to us. We're reminded of our identity. And this is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks through Ephesians. Who are we? We are called to live as children of, of light. We are those who are dearly loved by God. That is our identity. And that therefore shapes what we keep in and what we sift out of our lives. So there's this sense of which as we focus on that which we are called to do and called to be, uh, it reminds us of who we are, but then it also reminds us of who God is. And this sifting is a process of also strengthening our trust in God. Because as we sift things out of our life, we are constantly reminded that it's not what I have, it's not what I do that actually gives me security in life. That above all, I can trust a God who is good. Jesus has so much to say about sifting. He does use the word, but not probably in the context that that we're talking about this morning. But he talks so much about the decisions that are before us. One of the passages, there are so many passages I could have used this morning because the New Testament is all about the way in which we orient our life toward the kingdom and the things that we keep and the things that we, we sift away. But there's this beautiful passage in the Sermon on the Mount. You may know the passage if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount. It starts off where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. You kind of go, oh, that's a terrible thing to say. You can't just say to someone who worries, don't worry. It's like, that doesn't help at all. But Jesus isn't condemning people who are worriers or anxious in life, right? Don't, don't hear this passage. What Jesus does is he puts before us two ways of doing life. He said there are two ways of doing life. You can do life with worry and anxiety and thinking that it's all up to you. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? What, what, what am I? What am I? What am I? What am I? And Jesus says you can do life that way or you can do life a different way. And that's a way of understanding that there is a father who is good, a father who will provide, a father who looks out for you. And he puts before us these two ways of doing life, to trust or not to trust. Don't worry, he says, about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is life Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Don't worry, he says. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, he's referring to those who have no trust in God. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first what? His kingdom. And? You didn't know that one quite as much, did you? His righteousness. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this is not a call to laziness, okay? This is not a call for you to go and go, I don't have to do anything. God's going to provide. Don't take that passage out of context, right? But it's a call to trust. It's a call to trust our Heavenly Father rather than worry about the things that we need to do.
There are three things that I want to talk about this morning that we need to sift. It may be fairly obvious, they're very broad categories in life, but we need to sift what we have, we need to sift what we do, and the third one is we need to sift our messages. So I'm going to run through this quite quickly and see how we go. Firstly, sift what you have. Throughout the scriptures, and particularly through the New Testament, there is so much that is talked about what we have, our possessions, our wealth. So sifting what we have is a really important way of actually keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, because... We want to use what we have and we want to think about what we have through the lens of the kingdom, of how can I use what I have for the glory of God? How is the decision about what I own or what I don't own, how can that best give glory to God? And so we need to sift the decisions and what we do about what we have. Jesus talks consistently through the New Testament, through the Gospels, about possessions. He speaks most about the kingdom of God and coming in a very close second, he's talking about wealth and possessions. And often those two things, the kingdom and wealth and possessions, are lined up against each other. Now, understand me very well. Jesus is not anti-possessions. Jesus did not tell all his disciples that they needed to sell everything they had and follow him. He did use those words occasionally, but he did not make that a law for everybody. He wasn't anti-possessions. He wasn't requiring people to take a vow of poverty or anything like that. What Jesus spoke about was the perspective that we need to have when it comes to wealth and possessions, because our attitudes get really corrupted. And I'll keep going with this. But what he talked about, he actually even gave wealth and possessions a name, mammon. Uh, because in a sense, wealth and possessions have a life and a power of their own. And what they do is, is they actually work against everything that we are trying to, to do when it comes to sifting. So firstly, our wealth and possessions can become very much our source of identity. I am what I have. I am my car. I am my house. The things that I have, these make up who I am. So many people, and I'm, I'm not wanting to criticise this in any way, but possessions and the things that we own sometimes carry with them very strong memories and very strong emotions, right? And we become very, very, very attached to them because they carry in them a story. So there are things that we don't just dispose of because they carry something very powerful. Maybe it belonged to a parent or a grandparent or something like that. So the point is that possessions actually can become a very emotional attachment to them. Sometimes we just love it. We just love our house or we love our car or whatever, uh, which is better than hating your car or hating your house, surely. But the point is they become very much part of who we are and our identity can get confused by what we have. The other thing in terms of actually just making room, wealth and possessions can actually entangle us. There's a sense in which if you don't have enough, that's a worry, but the more you have, actually, the more you worry. Like, you, you understand this to be true. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Part of my other vocation of what I do is I, is I talk to people, not so much about money, but about their taxes. But it's very interesting, the conversations I have with people who are Christians, with people who aren't Christians. And what I find is that generally the more people have, the more effort it is to have those things. And so one of my clients, he's a Christian client, uh, has a property portfolio of around about $7 million. Now, his worry was the decline, because he lost around about a $1 million in the value of his properties. He was very, very anxious about this. Now, if I had $6 million left in a property portfolio, I'd be very happy with that. But the reality is, wealth and possessions has that power over us. So we may have millions and millions and millions of dollars, but if the, property, if the Sydney property market goes a little bit down, or 10% down, and you lose a million dollars, there's a sense of anxiety. Now, where does that come from? It's actually the power that wealth and possessions can have over us. You have one car, that's a pain in the neck. You have two cars, that's two pains in the neck. If you've got three or four cars, that's three or four pains in the neck. Somebody who owned a boat said to me, the two best times of owning a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. Right? 
you see, the more we have, the more it will crowd out our lives. Because what we own, our wealth and possessions, takes time and it takes energy. So Jesus warns about this. The other thing it does is, is it can actually cause us not to trust God. Again, this is a subtle thing that can happen, that the more we have, the more we become independent, the more we become self-reliant, the more we think that, well, I don't need God because I have everything I need. And I think we see this in a Western culture. There's a sense in which, well, why do I need God for? I'm doing life just fine without him. And so these things work against. And so the Bible has a lot to say about wealth and possessions. And it comes down more to attitude than anything. Because we can develop an attitude when it comes to wealth and possessions of, it's mine, I earned it, therefore I deserve it. It's mine to do with as I want. And thirdly, I don't have enough of it. When's enough? It's never enough, right? Whatever you have, you always want more. That's just the reality of life. So those attitudes need to be combated. And so what we need to do in working against their influence is actually start with with actually a change of of attitude. And I think when it comes to wealth and possessions, these are the three attitudes that as Christians are kingdom attitudes. These are kingdom perspectives. This is what it means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when it comes to the stuff we have. When it comes to wealth and possessions, uh, cultivate these three attitudes. Firstly, cultivate thankfulness. Be grateful for what you have. Rather than longing for what you don't have, be grateful for what you do have and give thanks for what you have. Okay, does that make sense? It works against uh, envy, it gets against greed, it works against this sense of I don't have enough. Find contentment, Uh, it's the same thing. There's a sense in actually finding contentment with what you have rather than looking at what you don't have. Often we look at what other people have and we want what they have rather than enjoy what we have. It's part of the human condition. Again, if we can find contentment, we will work against envy. This is beautiful passage from Philippians uh, where Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. Beautiful, beautiful phrase, isn't it? I have learnt the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed, hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The other attitude that we need to cultivate is that of generosity. So actually holding our wealth and our possessions with open hands. It works against this sense of this is mine, I deserve it, it's just back off everybody, this is mine to enjoy. But to actually hold our wealth and our possessions with open hands. So we've talked about the attitudes, now I actually want you to think up what are some of the actual actions, okay? So these are the attitudes, thankfulness, generosity and contentment. What are some of the practical things that you can do in your life that would actually assist in living these out? Does that make sense? Have a go at it. If you don't, I've got some as well. Okay, I'm only going to give you a minute. Some practical things that you can do. All right, and how did we go? Did anybody come up with some ideas? So what we're talking about now, this series is about basically disciplines to actually make room, to create space for God. So that's what we're looking for. We're speaking specifically now about what are some of the practices, what are some of the things that we can do that would help us sift through what we have. There is a sense in which the whole neighbourhood thing, this is the open hand. So actually realise that you're part of a, a group of people. So, you know, have your house 
open. Welcome people into your house. Share a meal. Uh, it may be that you've got a neighbourhood, and I've heard you know different neighbours doing this. Rather than ev- everyone own uh, a lawnmower, why don't you share one with a neighbour or something like that? We have this this thing of, of actually needing everything for ourselves rather than you know you've heard of libraries, right? We don't need to buy every book. Okay, other ideas. How, what are some of the practices we can do in terms of doing this? Come on, you've got lots of them, sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so get off social media. Social media does. It, it's, it, it's a showcase. And I'll come back to that when it comes about messages as well. Uh, what are the messages we get? But, but often it can. It generates this envy. And, and, and yeah, get away from that. Yeah, sorry, Jenny. Right. So being, in, being intentional in your giving, right? And that's the thing, like if you just give what's left over, there's nothing left over, right, because you can keep spending. Here are some practical things that I guess I've come across over the years, talked about before, but simply give stuff away. I just think giving stuff away is a really important part of life. Otherwise, you actually just keep accumulating, and the more you accumulate, the more hassle is, is in your life, the less room there is for life. Get into the habit of giving stuff away, if not for your own benefit, for the children who will come after you and have to clean out your house, Okay. <laughs> Give stuff away, particularly if you don't need it anymore. Donate it. Can't sell it, just give it away to someone. Some of you may know, because I've said this before, when I buy a new shirt, I take a shirt out of my cupboard. So I never increase the number of shirts in my cupboard. If I buy a new one, one goes. And and that's just a a rule of thumb that I use. Get into the habit of giving stuff away. And it's not just the stuff you don't want. If somebody says, I really like that, I really like that shirt, say, hey, fine, take it. Yeah, no, it's fine. But... But there is a sense in which I think we need to give more stuff away. The other side of this is I think we need to buy less. And there are really good reasons for buying less things. One is the clutter. The other is it, it frees you up money-wise as well, allows you to be more generous. But we buy too much. Have you worked that out? We buy too much. So think about what you buy. Think about it from a kingdom perspective. How is what I'm buying in any way contributing to my life in a positive way or to the kingdom values that I'm holding on to? Does this purchase actually honour God in any way at all? Obviously, don't go silly on that with everything that you buy. But there are major things that we buy, and we just don't think through them enough. We do. We buy a lot of stuff we throw away. It's an enormous, wasteful society in which we live in. We are part of that uh, as well. Firstly, another one, learn to enjoy things that are free. I just think this is a really good thing to do. A conversation with a a friend is a a free thing you can do, or with a a neighbour. There are things that we can do that don't cost money. But again, we are a culture that feels like we need to spend money to be entertained. That's not the case. I don't think there's anything better than a a walk along the coast or a walk up the Blue Mountains. There are things, yes, I know it costs petrol to get there, right? Don't get pedantic at me. But there are things that cost relatively little that you can enjoy. I just think there's a lot of ways we can break the hold that the wealth and possessions has over us. Uh, you know, be aware of the messages that come at us, whether it's social media or it's advertising. Everything we we'll want to say, you need this, you need this, buy this. Pause. Before you buy something, particularly something significant, pause and ask, do I really need that? I want to talk about a couple of other things as well. So firstly, we need to sift what we have. The other thing that we need to sift is what we do. And this comes back to the aspect of time. Wisdom, according to Ephesians 5, is actually knowing how to use the time well, actually redeeming the time. And again, there's some, some attitudes that we carry with time that I don't think are helpful. One of the attitudes is that I don't have enough time. Uh, let's just get this really clear. Time is not something that you can save. Time is not something that you can generate. Time is something that happens to you. You cannot influence the amount of time that you have in your life. The only thing that you can do is to use it well. 
And the Bible says wisdom is knowing how to use the time you have well. Don't buy into the lie that you don't have enough time. You're just not using it well. I think it was Richard Foster in his book on spiritual disciplines, he talks about simplicity, he talks about this. And he says one of the things that we get wrong is we say that I don't have enough time for that. And he says, no, that's not the problem. The problem is you don't care enough about that thing to give it the time that you have. The reality is we have the time to do the things that we want to do. We always have the time to do the things that we want to do. We just don't use our time well. So there's an attitude that needs to shift. What are some of the things that we can do maybe to, to sift through our time? One of them, the big ones for me, is, is just be intentional with your time. So many people are casual about their time. Be intentional with your time. The important things in life, time with God, time with family, whatever it is that are the important things, that you would say, these are my priorities, serving God, loving God, serving others, loving others. You need to put that in your diary. You actually need to make that a priority. This is what Kathy was talking about last week. Because if you don't schedule these things, they will get invaded. And even when you do schedule it, they will still get interrupted. There needs to be a commitment to the time that we set aside for the things that matter most. Don't tell me you don't have time to read the Bible. Don't tell me you have, don't have time to pray. Don't have time to be with your family. We have the time. We need wisdom to use the time that we have well. You can't make it. You can't save it. It's there. Use it well. The other thing that I would encourage us in our context is that we have so many choices and options available for how we can use our time. We just have this range of entertainment, we have a range of activities, we go into supermarkets, it takes so long to shop because there is such a range. This may sound like a strange thing, but what I'm going to ask you, if you want to use your time well, limit your choices. What I mean by that is often we come to a weekend and we may have five or six choices that are available to us. And what do we do in our culture? We do them all. Because that's what we do. We go from one thing to the next. If we have two cars, we divide and conquer and we go to two separate things and then we meet up and we go somewhere else. This is how we do life. There is a thing in our culture called the fear of missing out. It is a real thing. It's called FOMO. That's what it's called, fear of missing out. And what it causes us to do is we don't commit to one thing. Because if we commit to one thing, we may miss out on another and so what we do is we say yes to everything. I remember going to three consecutive parties on the same night because one of them, like I was younger, right? I was young and silly. But my fear was that one of them would be better than the other, but I didn't know which would be the best party. So I had to go to all three. Limit your choices. Be intentional about what you do. Limit your choices. The only other thing is not only sift what you have, sift what you do, but also sift the messages that come to you. Because I'm really conscious, again, in our culture, we are receiving messages all the time. And I'm not just talking about SMSs, I'm not just talking about emails. What I'm talking about is there are always voices, there is always information coming into our life. We have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news feed that comes into our lives. And some of us find ourselves quite addicted to actually always being on top of what is going on. We have messaging coming through media. We have messaging coming through advertising. And the messaging is basically saying this is what you need. This is who you are. Uh, this is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be wearing. Uh, this is where you need to be going on your next holiday. But there are more, uh, I think, dangerous messages that come through some of the stuff. It's almost envy. This is what it means to be successful. And so often we find ourselves caught in a trap of trying to compare ourselves, of trying to actually put ourselves out there in a really favourable light, of actually portraying an image to other people, in a sense portraying our own message to the world that I'm okay, I'm good, I'm part of this. 
Some of the messages are just completely against the kingdom of God and we need to hear them for what they are. The advertising campaign from years back, you know, you, who, you are the most important person in the world. That's not gospel, is it? That we are individually the most important thing that exists on this planet. That's not true. Some of the other messaging is, well, my needs should be satisfied, always. And provided it doesn't hurt anyone else, then that's, that's fine. That's, again, not a gospel message. Uh, we are constantly receiving messages and we need to sift them. Best way to do it? Any ideas? How do you sift your messages? Just align it against God's word is probably the best thing. If you are taking in messages after messages and messages and actually not reading God's word at all, that's not a good thing for you. There's so much more I could say on this. I love that passage from Philippians 4.8 as well uh, in terms of what we take into ourselves. Taking God's word, uh, taking all that is good. Remember then, Sift what you have, sift what you do, sift the messages. Because when you do that, you create room to love and to serve. You are reminded of who you truly are and you are reminded to trust God. I want to finish with a really quick story of a guy called Gideon from the Old Testament. Gideon is the guy, is the reason why I became a minister. When we were in our 20s, we had a number of people talk to us about going to ministry and doing training. And I thought, no way in the world. Everybody who's like, they don't know who I am. Like, I'm, I'm not equipped at all to be in ministry. And I was reading the story of Gideon one morning. And uh, I just remember God very quickly, uh, very clearly saying to me, not quickly, very clearly saying to me, if I can use Gideon, I can use you. In fact, you have a look at anyone in the scripture who I use and you'll realize they're just as flawed as you are. And, you know, and, and Gideon, in a sense, became, like he reminded me a bit of myself. He wasn't particularly impressive in any way. He was a man of very little courage. He was a man of very little faith. And this part has nothing to do with my family. But his father even had an, uh, like a, an idol in his backyard to Baal, of all things. Like That's not a good family pedigree, right, at all. But I love the way that God works with Gideon and all his flaws. And there was a sense, well, if God could do that, for him, he could do that for me. But the story of sifting I love the most from Gideon is this one because it dealt with Gideon's lack of trust. Gideon calls together an army. He says, like, because the Midianites had come, they'd over around the town. And he calls together an army. 32,000 men line up. And Gideon's right, awesome. I've got an army of 32,000 people. And God says to him, Gideon, you've got too many. Because if you win this fight, you're going to think you did it. And you're not going to give glory to me. And uh, he says, I want you to tell everybody who's a bit afraid to go home. So if you're afraid, you can go home now. Right? So 22,000 of them leave. And he's left with 10. I love that. You've got an army of 32,000. 22,000 of them are shaking in their boots. He goes, go home. So he's left with 10,000. And God says, you've got 10,000 men, Gideon. You've got too many. Because if you win this battle, you're going to think you did it. And you're not going to give glory to me. He says, Gideon, tell them to go have a drink down by the water. And they do that. And the, the weird thing is 9,700 of them drink a certain way and 300 drink another way. And God says, see the 300 who are doing that? They're your men. Send the other 9,700 home. You know, what I love about that story, this story of sifting from 32 down to 10,000 down to 300, is that when we sift... And when God does the work of sifting in our life, when he actually removes the things that we rely on and the things that we think we need, we actually give him an opportunity to be glorified and we give ourselves the opportunity to see what our God can do. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the way in which you've made it so clear for us of who we are and who we're created to be. You have made us and called us to be a people who worship you, who serve you, who bring glory to you and whose lives are oriented towards you and your kingdom. 
Father, you've made that very clear. And so, Lord, our response is to be intentional in the way in which we do life, to actually keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and throw off everything that does hinder us, the sin that entangles us. And so, Lord, would you give us wisdom this week? Uh, Would you enable us to actually look with great wisdom and clarity and honesty at our lives and to be able to sift those things that are unhelpful, even the good things in our lives that are unhelpful when it comes uh, to who we are and what we are called to do. Uh, Because, Lord, we desire to live for you and for your kingdom, not just in words, but in the way in which we live our lives every day. We do this for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.